Welcome to Peace by Believing with John Redmond, Associate Pastor of First Baptist Church in Pasadena, Texas. The battleground is set, the armies are in place, and the battle is about to begin. If you can, please turn in your Bible to Revelation chapter 19 and verse 11, as John continues his series on the book of Revelation with his message, The Battle of Armageddon, Part 2. He said, Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse And he who sat on him was called faithful and true. That's because God always keeps his promises. Jesus is true to his word. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. We don't think of Jesus as a judge. We think of Jesus as a savior. And he is a savior. But he's also a judge. And Jesus said in the gospel of John that God the Father has entrusted all judgment to him. And so at the end, it will be Jesus Christ who will judge. And so heaven is open. It's interesting. This is one of two times in the book of Revelation where in his vision, John saw heaven opened. The first time was in chapter 4, verse 1, when he said, I saw heaven open. That's when John was caught up and taken to heaven. That's a picture of the rapture of the church. So at the rapture, heaven will be open. And here at the second coming for Jesus to come back, heaven will be opened again. Look in verse 19. John said, and I saw the beast, that's the Antichrist, the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. And so, as the battle is about to start, we have the Antichrist and all his legions in the valley, and now we have heaven is opened, and Jesus is sitting on a white horse, and Jesus is about to leave heaven and descend for that valley of Megiddo. Now, as we think about Christ appearing, as we think about the second coming of Jesus Christ, I want to give you some uh, descriptors, descriptors today, descriptive words that help us to understand how Jesus Christ will appear. And you might want to just jot these down. First of all, it's very important that we see that Jesus will appear visibly. He will appear visibly. John has this vision. He's seeing Jesus. He's on a white horse. Jesus is not sending a delegation. He's not sending an angel. He and he's not coming invisibly. Jesus is appearing visibly. Now, at the rapture of the church, Jesus will only be seen by those of us who are saved. That's why there'll be such confusion on the earth after the rapture. Because the people who are left behind will not have seen what happened. It will be visible to us, but invisible to them. So the rapture of the church is not something that, that will not be a visible appearing to Jesus, to the world, visible to us, but not to everyone else. But turn back to Revelation chapter 1. I want to show you a very important verse. You want to mark this. Revelation chapter 1, and in verse number 7, let me let you find it. Revelation chapter 1, and in verse number 7. The Bible says, Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him. Say that part with me there. Every eye will see him. Every eye. The eyes of uh, the Antichrist. 
the eyes of the unsaved, the eyes of all these people in Megiddo, the eyes of people all over the world who will not physically be in Megiddo at that time. Every eye will see Jesus, and they will know that He is the one they should have received, and yet they have rejected Him. Now watch this. Even they who pierced Him, even those Roman soldiers who put the nails in His hands, even that uh, those Jewish people, those religious Jewish leaders of that time who are responsible, in a sense, for the crucifixion of Jesus, they will see Jesus. These people will, will be in Hades at this time. They're long since dead. And yet from Hades, every eye, not just every eye on earth, every eye on earth, every eye under the earth in Hades will see him, and they will know beyond the shadow of a doubt that the one whom they crucified, the one whom they turned against, the one whom they rejected was none other than God in the flesh, Jesus Christ. Every eye will see him, even they who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. You better believe they'll mourn. They'll mourn because they rejected him. They'll mourn because they crucified him. They'll mourn because they mocked him. And they'll mourn because now they will only meet him as judge. They could have had him as Savior. He offered himself as Savior. But that day's over. And now they will meet Jesus as the judge. And so the first thing is we think about how Jesus will appear. Jesus will appear visibly. The second descriptive word I'd like to give is simply this. Jesus will appear not only visibly, but Jesus in this great battle will appear triumphantly. He will appear triumphantly and victoriously. Look in verse number 12. Back to chapter 19 now, and in verse number 12. His eyes. Now, John is having a vision of the very eyes of Jesus on this horse, coming back to the earth, and yet he sees his eyes. His eyes were like a flame of fire. That is, his eyes are penetrating eyes. His eyes can not only see us, but they can see into us, and they can see through us to what is in our heart, our motives, our inner thoughts, our desires. His eyes were like a flame of fire. And on his head, now watch this, were many crowns, not just a crown, many crowns. Why? Because he's coming back as the conquering king. He's, He's triumphant. He's victorious. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. Now, somebody says, what is this blood a reference to? Well, it could be a reference to the blood he shed on the cross. Most Bible scholars don't think it's that because they say in this context, that doesn't seem to be what it's referring to. Some say that it's a reference to the blood that will be shed in the battle of Armageddon. But if you think about it, when he's first coming out of heaven, the blood hasn't been shed yet, so it's probably not the battle of Armageddon. Others say this blood that his robe has been dipped into is representative of the battles that Jesus has fought in the past with evil. And you read all the way through Old Testament times and New Testament times where God did battle Satan and he did put an end, in a sense, to certain forms of evil. And so maybe this blood is the blood from past battles that Jesus has already fought. But nonetheless, he was clothed with a long robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. When I read that, and when I read that, it takes me back to John chapter 1, the very first verse. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus is the Word. And here it says His name is called the Word of God. And so Jesus is coming back 
Not only visibly, but he's coming back triumphantly. Now remember, this is the second coming of Jesus. To appreciate the second coming, you have to keep in mind the first coming. In his first coming, he came to Bethlehem. In his second coming, he's coming to Megiddo. Think about this. In his first coming, after 33 years on the earth, in his first coming, what did Jesus do? He rode a donkey into Jerusalem. At his second coming, he will ride a white horse out of heaven. At his first coming, he came in humility. At his second coming, he's coming to rule and to reign. At his first coming, you think about the first coming and the second coming of Jesus. At the first coming, Jesus came to serve. But in the second coming, Jesus is coming to conquer. In the first coming, Jesus came to offer salvation to all who would believe. But at his second coming, he is coming to judge those who have rejected him and whose sins have not been forgiven. And so there's a great difference between his first coming and his second coming. His first coming, humility. His second coming, majesty. He's coming now as King of kings and Lord of lords. Make no mistake about it. That's who he was at his first coming. But at his first coming, he veiled his glory. In Philippians 2, we read about this. He laid aside his his royalty. That was all hidden. That was all veiled. But at his second coming, we will see Jesus Christ as he is. That's that's why when the apostle John had this vision back in Revelation chapter 1 of the risen exalted Jesus, he said to himself, I've never seen Jesus like this before. When I saw Jesus, he was walking by the Sea of Galilee. When I saw Jesus, he looked like one of us. And with the exception of that experience on the Mount of Transfiguration, I never saw Jesus in this way. But now I see him with his eyes like fire. And I see him with his hair as white as snow. And I see Christ in his exalted, glorified state. And so he's coming back triumphantly. But let me say something else about how Jesus will return. When he appears, he's coming not only visibly and triumphantly, but he's coming with a great army behind him. Now, look in verse number 14, one of my favorite verses in the Bible. As we read the description of how Jesus will descend from heaven and come to the valley of Megiddo, it says, and the armies of heaven, that's us, clothed in fine linen, that is representative of how faithfully we've lived our lives, white and clean, followed him on white horses. And so, when Jesus leaves heaven, we're leaving heaven too. When, that heaven, when, the, door, when, the, when the windows of heaven or the doors of heaven or the gates of heaven are open and Jesus descends, we're descending too. We're following Jesus. We're doing what we're supposed to be. We will be doing then what we're supposed to be doing now. And that is following Jesus. Jesus will be on his horse, and we will be on ours. We are that army in heaven that will be following Jesus out of heaven. And so he's coming with a great army. Can you think how many millions and millions of people will be in that army? It will be absolutely unbelievable. And if you're saved, you're going to be a part of that army. And then notice this. Jesus is coming not only visibly and triumphantly. He's coming not only with a great army behind him, but Jesus is coming to put an end to evil. Look in verse 15. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress 
of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has a name on his robe and on his thigh, a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now, notice at the end of 15, it says, He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. Talking about how when wine was made, how there would be a great crushing of those grapes, and he's, this is now being compared to his judgment. Turn back to verse to chapter 14. I want to show you another reference to this wine press. The grapes had to be crushed and pressed in order for there to be wine. That's why they, it's called a wine press. And out of that crushing came the wine. Out of this judgment will come not wine, but will come blood. Because look what's going to happen. It says, and the wine press was trampled outside the city. And the blood came out of the wine press up to the horse's bridles. That's about four feet high for 1,600 furlongs, which equals 184 miles. Think about that. This battle is going to be so awesome, so cataclysmic, so destructive, so inclusive, so great that when, when the sword of the Spirit comes out of Jesus' mouth, which I believe is a reference to His spoken word, Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12, the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged what? Any two-edged sword. And so when John says, look at it again now, back in chapter 19 and verse 15, out of his mouth goes a sharp sword. Is it a literal sword? It could be. I understand it to be the sword. His word is the sword. And Jesus will speak the word. And the Antichrist and all these people in the battle will be destroyed just like that. And so destructive will be their demise that blood will fill not only that valley of Megiddo, but it will fill 184 miles of Israel. That's basically from the north to the south, four feet high. Think about that blood flowing like a river, four feet high, 184 miles long. It is an amazing thing. And it is with his word that Jesus Christ is able to bring evil to an end. And as I think about that, I think about how powerful the Word of God is. If you, if you think about the Word of God, it is with God's Word, four words in English, two words in Hebrew. We read it in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 3, the first words recorded by God in the Bible, let there be light. And there was light. God created this whole world. How? The Big Bang Theory? No, by speaking the Word. He spoke the word, and the world came into existence. You know, the word of God is a powerful thing. Jesus, on that Sea of Galilee, in the midst of a storm, and his disciples thought they were going to drown, Jesus spoke a word and said to the wind and the waves and the storm, peace, be still, and the storm ended. There's power in the word of God. Jesus went to Lazarus' grave there, just behind the Mount of Olives, and Jesus, as Lazarus is lying dead in that grave, Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth. And what happened? A dead man came up out of that grave, and he came to life. And at this great battle, this final battle, this ultimate battle, Jesus Christ will speak the word and the Antichrist and the false prophet and all who have followed them will be destroyed. And so great will be their destruction that their blood will be four feet high, 184 miles going along. There's power in the, in the word of God. How do you know you're saved? 
How do I know I'm saved? Because I feel saved? Well, you know, today I feel saved. But I don't necessarily always feel saved. I don't know that I'm saved because I feel saved. I know I'm saved because God's Word says I'm saved. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. I believe and I'm saved. How do you know that you're never alone in life? Because you feel people around? No. How do I know I'm never alone? I live alone, but I'll tell you this, I'm never alone. How do I know that? Because of the Word of God which says to me that God would never leave me and He would never forsake me. How do we know when we're going through chaos and trouble and difficulties in life that it's all going to work out for good? Because we hope it will or believe it will or we have positive minds? No. We know it because of the Word of God that all things work together for good to those who love God and call according to prayer. How do we know when hell itself, when Satan and his legions turn against us to try to disrupt what God would do in our lives, how do we know that at the end of the day we'll be victorious? Because of the Word of God which says that no weapon formed against us shall prosper. How do we know when we're going through deep waters and tough times that we're going to come out victorious on the other end? Because of the Word of God, which says that in Christ Jesus, God always leads us in triumph. Everything we know, we know because of the Word of God. There's power in the Word, so much so. So much so. So much so that at the battle of Armageddon, the spoken word of Jesus will bring an end to the evil that will have dominated this world up to that time. Now, I've been to Israel seven times. My favorite trip to Israel was probably in 2006. Because on that trip, among other things, I got to be baptized in the Jordan River. And I wouldn't take anything for that experience. Very memorable in my mind even to this day. Also on that trip, as was true of all seven trips, we went down into that valley of Megiddo, and our guide was giving the lecture, as I referred to last week. And after he gave his lecture, my dad, as as is typical, got up to give a, not a lecture, but a spiritual challenge. That's kind of what the role of, of the pastor on that trip is. It's not just to give you the history. The guide will give you the history. It's to preach a little three, four, five-minute sermon, a devotional to make it practical and memorable. On this particular day, my dad did what he's done the other times I've been in that valley. He said, one of these days, God versus Satan, good versus evil, the saved versus the unsaved. He said, hopefully everybody in our group saved. If not, be a great time to get saved. And many of our trips, we've had people saved in Israel. He said, but let's just assume we're all saved. We all know people back home who are unsaved. And if they don't get saved, that means they're on the wrong side. They're on the losing side. So what I want us to do, I want us to scatter out all over this valley. And I want us to pray for our unsaved family and friends back home. And so we did that, not over the whole valley, but on the near side, on the south side of that valley. We just spread out a little bit and we began to pray for unsaved family members and unsaved friends. And I did that. And after a few minutes of praying for the unsaved to be saved, I I kind of just looked up into the sky there, into the heavens, and I began to use my sanctified imagination. And I began to imagine that day when the heavens would be opened and when Jesus Christ would appear on that white horse, eyes like fire, crowns on his head, robe dipped in blood, King of kings and Lord of lords. And I began to think not only about Jesus, but I began to think about that great army that will be following him out of heaven and back to earth. And I began thinking about the fact that 
He would be on a horse, and we would be on horses. And I'm trying to visualize what it will be like to fly on a horse from heaven to the Valley of Megiddo. Now I have to tell you this. I've, I've spent much of my life growing up in the country, but I'm kind of a city boy who was in the country. And so I've ridden horses, and I've done okay on the few times that I've ridden horses. But I'm going to tell you this. I've never flown on a horse. And riding on a horse makes me a little nervous. Flying on a horse scares me to death. And I got thinking not just about the apprehension that we might would feel. Of course, we won't feel it then. But, you know, now you think about it, it would be like. I got thinking about that moment. And more than the horse part, I got thinking about Jesus. And how good he's been to me. And how he, good he's been to all of us. And how much I love him. And I said this to Jesus on that particular day, just silently in my heart. I said, Lord, on that day when this battle takes place and heaven is open and you leave and you're on your horse and I'm on my horse, I said, Lord, I just pray that my horse could be next to your horse because wherever you are, I want to be as close to you as I possibly can. Now, you know, as I've thought more about that, on that day, Jesus will decide whose horse rides where. We're his army, and he will put us in the proper rank. On that day, he decides who rides closest to him. But on this day, we decide. We get to decide how close we are to Jesus. And I can't help but believe that our closeness to him now will one day be reflected to our closeness to him then. And when he comes out of heaven, we'll say, right on, King Jesus. Listen, in that battle, we don't have any guns. We don't have any knives. We don't have any weapons. All we do is follow Jesus, and he fights our battle for us. And I'm saying, if we'll follow him closely now, just maybe on that day, we can follow him closely then. Amen? Amen. Father, I look forward to that day. And I thank you that I know beyond the shadow of any doubt that I'm on the winning side, that I'm in the Lord's army. With your head bowed and eyes closed today, if you've never been saved, you need to be saved. Now is the time. If you don't get saved, there'll come a day from earth or from Hades that you will look up and see Jesus Christ on that white horse. And you will mourn because you rejected him. Don't be on that side. Be on the winning side. Pray this prayer right now. Say, Lord Jesus, come into my heart. Forgive my sins and make me a Christian. I ask you to save me. And I trust you to do it. I ask you to save me. And I trust you to do it. If you prayed that prayer, the Lord Jesus has just come to live in your heart. He has just come to save you. For those of you who have just prayed with John to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior today, we would love to know about it and to rejoice with you in your decision. We are so very happy for you. In fact, the Bible tells us that the angels are rejoicing in heaven right now over your decision. Please share your new life in Christ with us by sending an email to info at peacebybelieving.org or by giving us a call at 1-800-337-0157. Again, that's 1-800-337-0157.
We hope that today's message has been a blessing to you. You can find this message, along with the other messages in John's Revelation series, on our website, www.peacebybelieving.org, under the Broadcast tab. If you would like to watch videos of John's series on the book of Revelation from the beginning, you can simply go to www.fbp.org forward slash revelation. Again, that is www.fbp.org forward slash revelation. If you would like to grow in your relationship with the Lord, we have some resources that we believe will help you. Simply look at the booklets tab on peacebybelieving.org. The booklet, In the Twinkling of an Eye, is a great companion study to go with John's message from today. We would love to keep up with you on social media. We invite you to like Peace by Believing Ministries on Facebook and follow at PBB underscore broadcast on Twitter. And don't forget to share and to tell your friends and family about Peace by Believing. Thank you for joining us today, and we look forward to you being with us on the next Peace by Believing with John Redmond. God bless you.